0: This is Creative Mornings, a new podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by Shutterstock. With over 60 million photos, vectors, illustrations, videos, and music tracks, Shutterstock supplies the building blocks for the creative process. For a member discount, go to shutterstock.com slash creative mornings.
1: Ki-ki-di-ki.
0: Hey everybody, this is Matt. We did it, welcome to episode two. This means we can relax a little bit and put our feet up, not have to worry so much about formalities and introductions. For those of you with us last week, welcome back. And if you're joining us for the first time, hi. If you're interested in learning more about Creative Mornings, I recommend at some point hopping over to last week's episode with Casey Gerald. Before his talk, we spoke with Creative Mornings founder, Tina Roth Eisenberg. On today's episode, We're featuring Jessica Hish. Jessica speaks on the intersection of arts and technology through the lens of web typography as part of a special art and tech-themed month from back in June 2012. Jessica Hish is a renowned letterer, illustrator, web designer, and self-described crazy cat lady. For a bit of context, Jessica created the tilde font for the 2012 Wes Anderson film Moonrise Kingdom. The font has its own dedicated website at tilde.fontbureau.com if you want to check it out. In this talk, Jessica shines a bit of light on the rock stars of typography and that lack of communication between the design community and everyone else. You know, the simple things like knowing that font you may have huffed about not being free actually came from a person putting in days and weeks and months of hard work and passion. Mainly, though, her talk gives a call to action for designers not to be afraid of technology. The event took place in Vancouver, so I spoke with Creative Morning's Vancouver host, Mark Bussey. And if you were with us last week, you already know Mark. He's the voice behind our first ever rooster crow.
1: Oh, no. (laughs) There were people in my office... And I was like, okay, people can, you, this is, where do you go to do a roost? And I, was, I went into the stairwell, the emergency stairwell, and I did it. And I went, doo, 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 and I just busted up laughing like, oh my God, I'm an idiot. And then I, but I, and I opened it and there was a colleague going to the bathroom. And he was like,
0: <laughs> thanks for jeopardizing your credibility for the sake of our podcast, Mark. And while we're on the topic, if you'd like to embarrass yourself in front of coworkers, we'd love to hear an impression of what a rooster sounds like where you're from. You may have noticed that we changed it up. And this week, our rooster comes from our Creative Mornings community in Mexico City. So send us the audio with your name and where you are to podcast at and maybe we can use it on the show. Now, back to Jessica Hish. What's interesting is she's not Canadian. She doesn't even live there. She was just in town for a design conference, and Mark jumped at the opportunity to have her speak.
1: Jess, you're here. How about, you know, I buy you dinner and you come to a talk, and she was a big fan of creative mornings already anyway in fact I think I recall she said in the beginning part of the talk that she was like super intimidated that the, the quality of the speakers were so high and I'm like give me a break you're Jessica yeah. Hish look, like, give me a break
0: in a lot of ways Jessica's talk was a real wake-up call to the community
1: come on guys like step up and 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 embrace technology and make that a part of your, your practice because the world is becoming technical and, and you're you can take your art into the technical arena or you can get left behind And no no shortage of F-bombs and straight (laughs) straight talk from that woman either.
0: And according to Mark, she left more than a lasting impression.
1: There have been numerous times where people have said to me that that talk, being in the room that day, there were 200 people in the room, was a turning point for them in in terms of their relationship to their design craft.
0: As you just heard Mark mention, there's no shortage of F-bombs, so keep that in mind, Jessica lets loose a little bit. And here you have it, Jessica Hish on Art and Tech.
2: Hey guys, happy morning. I've been at a web conference for a couple of days, so I'm a little dry um, inside and out. But um, I'm really happy to be here, and I'm really sort of a little bit intimidated to be here too because of the theme of arts and tech. So I like do whatever I feel like doing most of the time. Um, I, of course, like, do a lot of client work that is still not the most glamorous client work, just to pay the bills, but I you know, try to spend all my free time doing everything I possibly can. But um, the, art, the arts and tech theme is awesome and I'm really intimidated to be up against all the other speakers at all the other chapters because they're like these crazy innovators changing the world and hacking the grid and all this kind of stuff and I'm just a person that like tweets about their cats too much and stuff like that. but. <laughs> Um, I do have a couple things to talk about today. I'm going slideless, so going rogue today. Um, this is my first time doing that, and I was like, I'm really scared to do it, and I'm going to try and keep my, key, my cursing at a minimum, because I know how, T- how Tina just absolutely hates it. So we've been at a couple of things together, and she's like, just sneering at me every time that I'm like, fuck, fuck, fuck. So I'm going to try and keep it, keep it down a little bit. That was probably all I can get out right now. But I do have a fun special guest today, too. You guys are like, should be amped about this. My friend John Tan, who's also a crazy type nerd and also a crazy tech nerd. And we're going to really geek out about some type geek stuff. So um, the first part, the the first thing that I really want to talk about is just how much of a bad rap all this tech stuff gets. Like, who went to art school? Like, raise your hands the entire room, right? Um... You took a class to learn Dreamweaver or Flash or something, right? And they were like, oh, don't bother looking at the code view. Like, it's fine. WYSIWYG all the way. You know, everybody sort of made it into this thing. Like, and it's, it's, I don't know who to place the blame with. There's a lot of people that try to to make tech into this unsexy, really, like, just disturbing thing that you save for the super nerds that work in windowless rooms, you know, (laughs) And, and and because it was something that was mandatory too, like, when I was in art school, you had to take a web class whether or not you ever felt like doing web design, so everyone knows that as soon as you make something mandatory, it becomes the opposite of what you want to do for a living. Um, I've been wanting to learn a second language forever and I refuse to learn Spanish even though I live in the middle of like the mission in San Francisco and like it would honestly help my day to day to learn Spanish. (laughs) But instead I want to oh maybe I'll learn Finnish, maybe I'll learn German, you know, like something completely useless that I won't use because then it's fun. It's fun to learn things that aren't helpful, you know? (laughs) But I think what ended, up, what ended up happening with a lot of, like, the, the web-cody stuff is that people made people made it into, It's too hard for you. You don't want to do it. It detracts from the cool. It detracts from the fun. And, and it's so fun. It's such a fun thing that is not intimidating to learn. And we have to totally, completely redo our opinion of what it is to learn that stuff. Um, I know you guys have seen, like, hovering art directors, right? Like, the website. If you don't know the, the like the actual terminology for all the CSS shit, and you're working, sorry, and you're working on that, <laughs> and you're working on a website, you become the hovering art director. Like, I have, I've worked with developers before, and developers that I love, but before I actually knew how to do all this stuff myself, I was that person that was like, can you move it on just one pixel that way? And it annoys the F out of people to be able to do, to have to do that, you know? It's just so much better if you can take the, take the reins and do it yourself. I'm working with um, Charity Water right now because we're getting married at the end of the summer and I want to do a donation registry. And I'm just like, we're going to put this stuff out. I want to raise a ton of money for you guys. but really want it to match all the rest of the wedding stuff. <laughs> and they're like, we don't have the infrastructure for that, blah, blah, blah. And I keep writing them being like, can I just send you a CSS file? Just put it in the head tag. It's easy. It's done. It's not, it's not hard. But it's one of those things, like, if you know how to do that stuff, you can totally, like, people that don't have the infrastructure, you can make the infrastructure happen for them. And, and that's just, like, you have to learn the tools to make awesome stuff. Like, you don't not learn it just because it seems intimidating. If you want to make cool things, you got to learn the tools it takes to make them. And I've been talking at a lot of web stuff lately, which is really funny because like, for professionally, I do no web design. I do a ton of web stuff for my own projects, but I don't do any of it professionally. So I kind of love being like the token zany girl on stage, showing pretty pictures all the time. Um, but at the same time, I like really love to just like, Punch designers, like, web designers in the face that refuse to learn how to do HTML and CSS. Because if I'm, like, a letterer and I can learn how to do it myself in six months for, like, a thing that's completely unrelated to my career, I just think it's lazy if you don't learn it yourself. And this is going to go live on the Internet and a bunch of people are going to rain down shit on me for it. But... (laughs) I really believe that's true. I mean, if you're a mechanic, you're not like, meh, okay, I'll learn only about this one thing related to cars and then just outsource everything else and make my customer's life a complete hell, you know? You you learn the tools that you need to learn to make the things that you want to make. And sometimes it is like completely unrelated to your field, but I wouldn't be able to do any of the side projects that I do if I didn't learn it. Because I have like 10 or 11 side projects that I put together, which is like, so it's wonderful and also the bane of my existence sometimes because I'm like, oh, I got to post another thing. Why did I make this thing that's ongoing? I I should hire people, but it doesn't make any money and I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> but, you know, it, you limit yourself to making making only things that can be highly profitable if you if you have to outsource all the tech. And if you learn it yourself, you know, you're, the che- you're your cheapest labor, you know what I mean? So uh, none of the websites that I actually put up, like, like the Inker Linker, which is a database for printers, the Should I Work for Free Charge, the Don't Fear the Internet, which actually helps teach a lot of this HTML, CSS stuff. None of that would have ever happened had I not been able to teach myself this HTML, CSS, because I wouldn't be able to invest five grand in hiring a developer for something I knew that would never make money. it's, it's sort of, you have to, if you have a thing that you want to do, don't be lazy and wait and just be like, oh, I guess I can't do it because it'll take me three weeks to learn the thing that I have to learn. Like, just grab the reins and fucking do it. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and curse. It's just, I can't <laughs> hold back. I can't hold it back. Whew, sorry. Um, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you guys know me. I, this is what I do. The first point that I really wanted to make um, at this, like, arts and tech thing is that tech gets a bad rap. And, you know, a lot of the tech people are like, we need to integrate art into our tech. But I think there's a lot of art people that need to integrate tech into their art. You know, because it's not that difficult. It's not. It's fun. It's like doing crossword puzzles. And, like, I'm, I'm trying to learn all this crazy JavaScript stuff, and I have to stop myself because I know that it's totally useless for, like, actually my career. But it's just so fun to learn. And any time that you, like, that desire to learn is really the only thing that you should have picked up in college. Like, your, your college career, is, your, your diploma is not meant to like be this definitive, you have all the knowledge in the world, go out and make shit. It's to actually, the, the only thing they have to instill in you is like the thought that learning is fun. And a lot of people pick it up earlier because they go to good high schools or they go to good grammar, grammar schools and have a mentor. But that's the only thing that's important to learn in college is that learning doesn't stop in college. And that you have to really take joy in learning this new stuff. And tech is so fun to learn. And you know, now I'm surrounded more and more by them because I live in San Francisco and you can't spit and not hit like some weird iOS developer or something like that. I swear to God, coffee shop dialogue is so much more intense now. Like when I first moved there, it was totally novel and fun. I was like, oh my God, everybody's talking about venture capital all the time. And then like three weeks later, I was like, oh my God, everyone's talking about venture capital all the time. You know, so I was really hungry. I'm like, can I just go back to Brooklyn? Can someone be talking about some snooty band or something? But, like, it's it just being so much in that environment now has really gotten me amped about it. And seeing people, like, to see the artistry in the tech. Like, there is so much craft to it. You know, if you actually know some really nerdy web dudes, like, if you look into their code, everything is, like, whew, like they, they spend a shit ton of time doing way more work than they have to because it has to be perfect and it has to be beautiful. And beautiful code is something that, like, that the real nerds strive for, but that all people should strive for. And it's really fun to make everything perfect from the inside out. You wouldn't buy a house that had shitty wiring, you know? And you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't deal with a website that has this like crappy thrown together back end because it's just going to cause you trouble in the future. And if you can be the one to help, you know, make those changes or like if you, if you, like I had an issue with my own site where it was built on Ruby and it was awesome. It was like, ran super well, a couple of my developer friends made it for me for free. I like promised to do them artwork and I still owe it to them and I'm a really bad friend for that. Um, But they they built me this really rad website, but the only issue is that right when the web fonts thing hit, I wanted to switch out all my type from like like text as image into actual web fonts and I couldn't do it myself because I didn't know how to do it. And that's something that's so easy to do, like if you know it, like if you wanna make a decision and just be like, let me just try this out, You know, you you can do so much with it that way. So that's me talking about everyone should learn HTML, CSS, whatever it is that you need to learn, JavaScript, Ruby, whatever it is. Because it's, it's just so liberating to be able to make anything that you want to make. It's so liberating. And it's not scary. And people try to make it into this scary, super nerdy thing. HTML is just going around with a label maker and throwing labels on everything. And CSS is totally like, it's annoying that you have to write all these commas and semicolons and all this kind of jazz. But... Other than that, it's like, it's pretty easy. You could just, like, read through it and understand it. And paying attention to all the new stuff that's happening, I mean, there's so, like, we're a part of, like, the future of all this stuff right now. And if you pay attention to it, it's like every week they're releasing new features, and now you can use OpenType on the web, and now you can do this, and blah, blah, blah. And if you're a part of that, it's, like, really exciting. It's exciting to, like, feel like you're a part of the future. Um, Anyway, rant, rant, rant. So I'm going to make John come up here now. Sorry. We're talking about type nerd stuff now. So, um, or I'll probably just end up taking over the mic and you'll just be like I'm my, my behind pretty you. assistant.
3: Behind you. Yeah.
2: <laughs> anyway.
3: Yeah.
2: Do it. Here, let's sit down. Okay.
0: This friend that she's pulling on stage from the audience is John Tan. He's a designer and co-founder of Analog, Mapalong, and Tech.
2: Second half of the talk is all about type nerdiness. So, okay, I... I got into this by doing lettering. So I I started in design, ended up in illustration, ended up in lettering. And then I was like, man, type design, it's totally the same thing, right? And then I was like, holy shit, no, it is not at all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And (laughs) type design is one of those things that, like, a lot of people have no idea how much tech is involved in it. And a lot of people don't even think about type as being a thing that people make, you know? And that's, I mean, John, you were just talking about, like, how many Unicode characters there are. Yeah. Just right I mean, before this.
3: Anybody in the room know how many Unicode characters there are in the range? 880. <laughs> no. 65,000? 65,000. 65,000 over different characters or glyphs in the Unicode range that a, a single typeface or a font of a typeface could have in it. It's just a vast amount of characters that someone spent drawing for.
2: Yeah, and, and that's the main thing years. that people don't realize is like I, I took a type design course, like a continuing ed course in type design, and they were constantly yelling at me for working too fast. They were like, it should take you a day to draw a letter. You know, that's how, that's how long you should be spending studying these curves and really perfecting it. And it took me, I was so curmudgeon about it when they were, I was like, this is not how I work. Blah, blah, blah. So I work faster, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really is so true. And I started doing workshops at my studio. And, like, we only draw two letters over the course of the entire workshop. And by the end of the day, they're like, oh, my God, I need another two hours to work on this. <laughs> you know, and people just don't really realize. But that has nothing to do with even the tech of it. You know, um, I mean, I really love to be able to tell you guys that type designers are human beings. And every time you buy a typeface, you're actually, like, paying someone's bills, which is the truth. You know, Adobe has done a, a lot of good, good stuff for, for type in the past. But Adobe is, like, the distributor of a bunch of individual stuff. You know, so like, Ali Paul is a single dude and he makes all those script typefaces that you all put on your wedding invitations. And it's crazy.
3: But they're spending, what, two years kind of embedding the idea of something into the curves of a typeface. And that's just drawing it, right? And then you've got to produce fonts from that. Mm-hmm. And the fonts have to work on multiple different platforms in different scenarios. So you get a regular weight and then you've got a book weight and you've got all the different variants of weight and condensed or extended in this whole family. So type designers are kind of doing our job for us. They're kind of providing us with a toolkit. And on the web, it's even more so. There's a new uh, typeface by a guy uh, called uh, Type from uh, Sweden, Type from Sweden, I think it is, Goran Soderstrom. Goran, if you ever see this, if I got your name wrong, I'm really sorry. This typeface is called Siri. And he's drawn it specifically for the screen. Yeah, and he's taken time and time and time to think about how he can help designers.
2: Yeah, and John showed us a slide of this yesterday. I was actually not aware of this typeface yet, but it's this little tiny stuff, like in the screen version, all the like tiny, like on a lowercase T, you know how sometimes the top of the T kind of curves up a little bit? It's flattened out for screen because then pixels won't try to interpolate whatever that little jobby is up at the top. I I use really proper type terms all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh,
3: (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, and, and you've got, like, and you've got Heffield, Fred Jones, who, you know, they spent probably in secret, but not really in secret, because everybody knows, like, the last couple of years, redrawing all of their typefaces ready to produce them for the web. You know, and the reason it's taken so long is because I think they're just applying a huge amount of diligence to testing all of their faces. And um, I think it's Jonathan Heffer who said that typeface is an idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, a font is just an expression of it for the sort of purpose that it's, that it's there to deserve, like the screen.
2: And the thing that, like you, don't, like, you guys made work three years ago that you absolutely hate now, right? Like, think about your portfolio three years ago, typefaces are out forever. Like they are, the, they are that student project that comes back to haunt you on a billboard in the middle of like the mall. <laughs> and, So they really have to pour so much more time into it than you'd think. And you know how, like, you guys get frustrated because you feel like people aren't making tools fast enough for you. You know, there's, like, the tools are great, but they could be better, and it's not getting fast enough. Imagine if your community was, like, a hundredth of the size of the design community, how no one wants to actually make tools for you. Like, there are a couple people, but all the tools are coming from within the type community. So a lot of people don't really realize that a giant number of type designers do a ton of Python programming to make scripts for themselves to like expedite their drawing process. And like, so I was a part of this uh, type at Cooper program in the States. And that was one of the things that we did. We did a Python workshop that was like a full weekend workshop of all learning Python scripting. And that's just something that people don't realize. And now, like, FontLab is sort of, has been, like, the industry standard for the type design community, but everybody hates it. Because everybody hates it when there's only, like, you know, one program that's not getting updated often because it's for this tiny community. So a lot of, a couple type designers took it into their own hands and actually wrote their own programs. So this dude, Georg Seifert, made this program called Glyphs. So it's Glyphs app, and you can buy it in, like, the App Store through your Mac, and it's super mac and pretty looking. Um, but it, he is one guy that made this program, and you can write him when you when you're like, I wish it did this. He's like, cool, I'll do that. You know, and like, <laughs> and a lot of people don't realize that about like type in general. If you write a type designer and say like, how come your typeface doesn't come in a 300 weight? They're like, here you go. You know, like. <laughs> Like, we'll, we'll work on that. We get enough requests and we work on it. Um, but it is such, like, it is such an open community and, like, able to... It's so malleable and it's so... It needs your opinion. It needs designers' opinions to move forward. And a lot of people don't realize how accessible type designers are because... You know, we all went through that trend in like the late 90s and early 2000s where everybody was trying to be a studio or trying to be a corporation because cli- they felt like clients really wanted them to believe that it was they were like this big company and not just this person working in their pajamas. And I think that type designers have felt that the most out of all, out of, all of the communities because they br- branded themselves as studios and then everyone just thinks that they can steal from a corporation instead of stealing from a person. And so that's a a major, major PR problem within the type community. And web people have the same issue where they don't, they don't, there's not enough outreach. So people just don't realize that, like, there's people behind all these things.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, if you're ever interested in a typeface and you want different variants or weights of it or something like that, or you just want to find out about it and what's in it. You know, I think if you write to a type designer, they're so happy to talk about type to potential people who are interested in it and customers, I think. It's such a tiny community as well. It's really easy somewhere to get involved in, even just to lurk, right? I lurk on the a type list because those people are way too smart and know way much more about type than I ever will. So I lurk there hearing these amazing conversations about what's going on in in this very small community. And now I encourage you to have a look at that um, a type as an organization and join the mailing list if you're interested in this stuff.
2: There's a couple of conferences for type stuff, and A-Type-I is kind of like the big international one, but it is so nerdy. Like, if you go, you will be just soaked in nerddom the entire weekend. Um, a couple of the other ones are a little more low-key, and like side painting and blah, 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 but A-Type-I is like legit people presenting all kinds of crazy shit there. But another one, so another program that that type designers made is RoboFont. So RoboFont is, it came out recently, there's this new font format called UFO that that it uses. And there's a couple of dudes that have been making all these scripts that are plugins for FontLab for years, like Metrics Machine, everybody uses it. And uh, Superpolator is another one, which actually, when you draw typefaces, if you're drawing a text typeface, you can draw like a light, a medium and a bold and interpolate between them if they're drawn really, really well with this thing called Superpolator. And it's just a couple of type designers that made this shit and everybody uses it. And so they're this community that has been like, not neglected, but you know, there's such a a niche industry and people don't want to make stuff for niches. They want to make like the new Facebook. They want to make the new whatever that, that reaches out to everybody and is super profitable and no one wants to make stuff for edge cases so this edge case made stuff for themselves and that's why i think that like type is type is really my favorite intersection of the arts and tech stuff because most people don't know how much tech goes into it or like even if you think about open type stuff like open type is awesome and you can make typefaces do so much sometimes it's really subtle and sometimes it's really crazy but it's amazing to do. When I worked on the Moonrise Kingdom stuff, I made contextual alternates for when the, the at the end of the word, so that it wouldn't have these, like, long upstrokes where, you know, like how the typeface connects to each other. I wanted them to be a little shorter, so it looked more purposeful and didn't look like it was just a canned typeface. But you have to actually program that into the typeface yourself in a language that looks like kind of like flashy stuff. It's like sub A by B when this equals this, you know, and that's not something that a lot of people realize that these type designers are going into the OpenType palettes and writing all the kerning tables and writing all of the, you know, all of the contextual alts and the ligatures and the discretionary ligatures. And what totally sucks is that no one knows how to use that shit. No one turns it on in the open type palette. The the main issue is that a lot of type designers release PDFs along with their typefaces, and have you ever read a PDF that came along with your typeface? No one. No one reads them. And so it's an advocacy thing. You know, there's not, the community is so small and so insular that people don't actually, there's not a lot of outreach. And the thing is, a lot of the type stuff is not very sexy to the design community at large. You get a crazy type nerd to come speak at a conference and everybody glazes over. But I'm like in the front row taking feverish notes and stuff like that. And it's, it's something that not a lot of people know how to use. And just so you guys know, there is a thing called the glyphs palette in <laughs> Illustrator and InDesign where you can access all of the all of the characters in a typeface. There's a thing called the open type palette where you can turn on ligatures, discretionary ligatures, other things like that, contextual alternates. They're just little buttons, you you'd click them and unclick them and most people just don't know how to get to it or don't think to do it and i you know as someone that sells my own typefaces i'm constantly fielding these emails that are like my typeface doesn't have swashes in it like it said it would i want a refund and i'm like <laughs> i'm like okay open up this blah 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 you know so i've had to start like whenever people buy a typeface and i don't want to talk down to people when they buy things you know Telling them about this stuff in the email when they buy it. Just to be like, and just so you know, this stuff is there. You just got to do this to get to it. <laughs> but yeah, and I mean, it's one of those, like, the 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 real nerds make these crazy typefaces that, like, have all these crazy features and no one uses them. And it's so upsetting when you see, like, this <clears throat> awesome display typeface that has all these insane open type features in it. And it's just only the default characters all the time.
3: And they're really beautiful.
2: And they're beautiful. And they have shit built in, like, like the open type feature that... It, it determines when your pen would have run out of ink and swaps out a character. Yeah. You know, so like the pen picks up and puts it back down. And that's some nerdy stuff. That's some really nerdy stuff. And it's awesome that they do that. And it's sad that no one knows that that's real.
3: But even on a simple level, you've got a, a typeface like Pimlico from Fontsmith by Fernando Mala, and it's got all these beautiful swash um, caps in there that you can use. And you can actually use this stuff on the web right now. You know, the, I mean, Fontdeck we provide a subset font so you can have the regular kind of typeface. Yeah, I should probably
2: subset. intro John that John was one of the founders of Fontdex, so that's one of the things too.
3: So we've got this extra subset character where you can include another font and then just swap out one, one character to have a beautiful swash at the start of a word on, on some display type. And we can use this on the web now, and you could use it in every single browser. But, you know, it's just got to just digging into it and finding out about that sort of stuff. And those kind of tiny details to me in type at least, they paint pictures in people's minds, like emotional pictures. Just little changes like that and paying attention to them. And that's kind of where the science and the, the, the technology and the art intersect. Because like, fundamentally, we're all designing for emotion. And type has such a massive part to play in that.
2: Every time I get in these conversations, I'm like, I know, I know, I know. And I'm like, no one knows about it. And you know, so we get really fired up. I think
3: people do know about it. I think sometimes that we can seem a little bit inaccessible, inaccessible and it's not part of a regular workflow. Especially on the website stuff, if you're involved in that. You know, it's all kind of a bit, a, a bit new, and it needs trying out, and you need to get comfortable with it, you know, all the, all the... And the
2: main stuff. thing, too, is when it, comes to, when it comes to type, it takes so long to appreciate the subtle stuff. Like, so long. When you first start out as a designer, you're, like, in love with all the crazy display stuff, and don't give a shit about display... or about text type. You're like, whatever, Baskerville, everything. I don't care. You know? <laughs> or, like... <laughs> like, I love art... <laughs> yeah, Helvetica for the world. And both of us are not, like, crazy Helvetica fans. But, um... But yeah, it's one of those things, or like HNFJ releases a new typeface and it becomes a typeface that you use on literally everything, including things that it's totally inappropriate for. Because people, people fall in love with a typeface but don't realize that you can't just fall in love, you have to like use it appropriately. So people ask me, they probably ask you all the time, like what's your favorite font? Which is like the dumbest question ever. Like, for one, it's a dumb question because it's kind of a default question. But also, I really believe that if you have a favorite font, you're using that font inappropriately. Like, it's okay to have a favorite foundry that you return to over and over again. It's like a fashion designer, you know? Like, if there's a fashion designer and you're like, they just make stuff that fits me, you know? And you go to them over and over again every season to get the thing that you think is going to fit you, that's great. But if you have a favorite font, you're using some, like, super friendly serif on, like, a really serious affair, you
3: know? Well, we didn't have a choice for a long time, right? I mean, if you work on the web, we had a very, very limited palette for such a long time. Really, we only had, like, aerial Verdana, and George, Yeah, yeah. You know, everything else is really, you know, a bit kind of rubbish, even trebuchet. But, you know, I, so we had such a limited palette, we got used to not even thinking about it. And now we have to think about it, and it can, and it can seem really complex. Well, you is, know, me, what
2: exactly I think is so awesome, though, is that like, the the web community is such this, like, underappreciated community of people that are hyper-nerds, like, a lot of times, and everyone's like, oh, website? I can get that for $200 on the internet, you know? <laughs> and, like, the, you're like, oh, my God. It's the same way we feel about 99designs and all that kind of stuff, you know? Like, they have a hundred times that of a problem that we, we, that we regular designers do because we can just accept that most of the world is going to look like shit because no one wants to spend money on design. And we have to do what we can to advocate for ourselves. You know, like we have to, if someone comes to you and says, I have a $99 budget for a logo, don't just dismiss them and tell them that they're a moron. You have to be the one to tell them like, you know what you're going to get for $99? I can give you a logo for $99. It's called boop, boop, boop. Here you go. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like... Like, you have to tell them what our value is because if you're not advocating constantly, if you're not the one helping to educate people, you're not changing the game. You're not the one that's, like, helping us to get better prices later, helping people to appreciate the people that have this insane craft that are doing it. And, you know, I I, I talked at a conference recently, and someone really drove this point home that the best way to make sure that something's going to, like, get better and, and improve is to, like, financially support it. And if you don't buy good typefaces, like, if you, don't, if you don't actually, like, show foundries that they're doing awesome stuff by going about it the legal way and buying the typefaces, they can't make awesome stuff in the future. You know? Like, you kill, you kill their ability to make stuff by not financially supporting amazingly it. amazingly
3: good value, though. I mean, I, I feel like a kind of a bit weird advocating for this, but they are. I mean, yeah. this is a tool for life. It never, it never, it's never going to get weaker. It's never going to change and degrade and become out of date. Yeah. It's a thing that you have for life.
2: Yeah, a big thing that a lot of people don't realize is, like, when was the last time you bought software that 20 years later still worked on your computer? Think about it, CS6 people that I don't have that yet. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, all other software that you buy, you upgrade it every year. And a typeface is software that you install on your computer that should be future proof. It just works forever. And how how often does that happen? So you can't get super upset when something costs hundred dollars because you can use it for the rest of your life. Yeah,
3: you know, I mean, most of the really expensive expensive sort of for super families I see, you know, they're kind of like twenty dollars per per font. Which yeah. if you break it down if you do the math and break
2: it. Yeah, down. I mean, I'd, I like if you really break it down, like how much time and man, like manpower people put into stuff. Like if you, if, even if you take H and F J, which is like a super successful type foundry, like people support them like crazy. But if you take something like Gotham that took a year and a half to make, divide that by the salaries of fifteen people plus two owners and the overhead of a student, uh, and a, a place in Manhattan to house those, you know, twenty people. You're talking a massive overhead to make a typeface for a year and a half, and it takes time to earn that back. And you know, like H and F J are just complete rock stars, so they can do it, but. Like for every one of them, there's these type designers that are making these outrageously awesome text typefaces, spending two years doing it and having people bitching that they charge fifty dollars for it. Yeah, I
3: think I think Oscar Rengen made Museo, drew Museo in his spare time. He yeah, it for fun, for love. You know, didn't and
2: a lot fun. of them, uh, like almost every type designer that you speak to, they do it for love. You know, and that's that's like the sign of someone that you want to be a fan of or that you want to work for is would they be doing it if they weren't getting paid? But at the same time. Everyone has all this experience, and you have to really be able to support them because otherwise it does become this spare time thing. And, like, they have to have a day job, and they they can only do it. And that's why, you know, some people take five years to release a typeface because no one's there to financially back them.
3: Yeah, I mean, it makes it even, even easier these days as well because you can support them by using them on the web. Yeah. You know, and it's such a little chunk of money to be able to, to actually license web fonts. from, from any...
2: So people get real uppity about the subscription stuff I, and all that stuff, and I don't get it. It's so get, cheap still. I
3: get really uptight about this sort of um, design agencies who will only use Google web fonts because they're free. I'm like, come on, man, really? You want to save $12 a year so you're just going to use that exclusively? It, it, it's kind of an investment for me. I see it as me investing in my own craft because if I. If I license these things, they're just gonna be more and better.
2: Well, also, that's I mean, kind of I, when I think about how much useless stuff I do on the day to day to make myself happy <laughs> that costs money, like I'm like, oh my God, I'll get a massage for $75. You know, that's three typefaces. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> You know, and, like, you all did this when you were students, too. You remember when food was something that you didn't think should be spent money on? Like, I remember that, where I was like, food? Who spends money on food? It's gone in 20 minutes, you know? Like, and I feel like a lot of people feel that way about certain things. And, and, you know, typefaces are, they they are a giant part of your life, and it's, it should it should feel good to to spend money on them. It, sh- it should feel like you're sp- you're having a fun shopping spree. Not that not that you're like, oh my god, I guess I got to pay twelve dollars for a typeface. Yeah, I
3: mean, if, if I was gonna just say something. like that, I really encourage everyone to find out a little bit more about the craft, about how these things are made. They have this amazing provenance about why why they're made. If you go find out about it, I think, you know, it just develops your appreciation and you start to love this stuff. And they
2: love to talk about it, too. Type designers love to talk about the things that they're doing because they put so much time into it. And if you could imagine, if you stared at a lowercase letter N for nine hours, you would be able to say a lot about it, you know? (laughs) So they like if you read the pdfs read the blog, the blog posts you know read the materials that they put out with it because it's brilliant it's brilliant to see the process and Thank everyone so everyone's obsessed with process that's why there's so many q and a blogs out there and there's so many like inside your studio la 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 you know but this is like a whole group of people that spend so much time and effort and and are just sort of the pushed to the side you know we get these Art Directors Club of the World awards for these posters that have one big word on it. And no one turns around and says, thanks, man. Good typeface on that, (laughs) you know.
0: (laughs) As usual, what followed was an audience question and answer session. I'm going to share with you two of my favorite answers, but the entire talk is up at creativemornings.com. First up, someone mentioned that there's all this talk about how designers should learn to code but would they offer the same advice for marketing and communications people to learn design?
3: Um, no.
1: Plus <laughs> one.
2: You know what? If you, if you throw yourself full throttle into it, absolutely. How many self-taught designers are there? Tons. Especially when it comes to the web. You know, There's just a ton of self-taught designers. And if it is something that is absolutely essential to you that you cannot output the money for and you can commit 100% to learning how to design well, more power to you. You know, I would never say that any part of our industry is off limits to any other part of our industry. If you actually have good intentions and pay it respect and respect the people in the field that are trying to do awesome stuff, you know, like there's, there's no reason why we can be snobby about it and say like, if you don't have a BFA, you shouldn't be doing this stuff.
0: The second question is about typography. It came from a woman who said, is it possible because there's such an intense focus on the labor craft and design that there's a bit of a PR problem? And would it be possible to reach beyond the design community to get people thinking about type in their everyday life?
2: The, the PR thing is completely real and a, a lot of that is because they a lot of type designers view like public speaking and celebrity as being something that negates from their artistry. So I've actually reached out to a number of them because I was like, let's put a, let's put like a video series together, put your face on the screen so that people know that you're a person. And honestly like eight out of 10 people were like, I don't want that. I want, people, I want people to know me for my work, not for my face. And I'm like, you don't realize that if people know your face, they won't steal from you. Like, you're a person. You're, you're not this faceless corporation. The problem is there's this perception over becoming a celebrity that suddenly you lose your ability to have value in the community. And really, I mean, it's just completely false. You can still make beautiful work while you're out talking about that beautiful work.
0: You can browse the complete archives at creativemornings.com talks. Hey, it's time for some business. Today's episode was made possible by Shutterstock. And I spoke with Derek Rhodes, an employee at the company, who gave me the
4: elevator pitch. Most simply put, Shutterstock is a creative marketplace for, you know, images, footage, and music for people to, um, to come and license content that they need for their creative projects to help tell stories.
0: And Derek here handles the footage side of things.
4: We get like a wide range of content from like people that shoot with DSLRs and like less expensive cameras to folks that are really producing for like major major motion pictures and you know, in a super high end way like shooting from helicopters and stuff.
0: And this constant supply of content is coming from over 80,000 contributors.
4: And a lot of those people are people that really love technology and cutting edge technology. And so it's, it can be really inspiring and, and, um, and exciting to see the kinds of things they come up with and the kinds of work that they submit. I mean, one of the things that's been really interesting to me has been the amount of footage shot with like this new generation of quadcopters and drones. Content that you would never believe was shot with something that cost you know less than fifteen hundred bucks that someone was flying that looks spectacular.
0: With over sixty million photos, vectors, illustrations, videos, and music tracks, Shutterstock supplies the building blocks for the creative process. For a member discount, go to Shutterstock.com/creative mornings. So last week, we asked you to send us your voice memos with the answer to our question, what does it mean to you to lead a creative life? The response has been amazing, so please keep the submissions coming. Here's Bobby from our New York City community. To live a creative life is to just feel comfortable and expressing yourself. And for me, it's kind of not being stuck just through your normal routine of like a desk job, just emailing all day. It's kind of just breaking out of that and finding something that makes you feel good send us your voice memos to podcast at creative mornings.com next week we'll hear from president of the design division at sterling brands and design matters podcast host debbie millman she takes us back to school with her talk the top 10 things i wish i knew when i graduated college
2: there's Nothing wrong with saying that you don't know something, especially if you're a recent graduate. That's the time in your life when you're not expected to know anything.
0: Our thanks to everyone at Creative Mornings, Mark Bussey, Jessica Hish, and John Tan. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios in collaboration with S. Mateo Music. Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning. Remember, it's singular. And use hashtag podcastcm when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. (laughs)
3: <laughs> no. <laughs>